Thank you for listening to Law Talks. Before you listen in to this episode, we wanted to let you know that this is one of our first attempts at creating the podcast. And as a result, it lacks the audio quality and cohesion that the later episodes have. We've kept it unchanged as the content is invaluable and very much worth a listen. We hope you'll stick around and check out and listen in to our more recent episodes too. Welcome to the second episode of Law Talks with Ellie and Katie. Today we're focusing on family law. Joining us is Fiona Hay, a family law specialist barrister with a particular focus on financial remedy cases in discord over pension entitlements. She's an alternative dispute resolution advocate, which are situations where disputes are resolved without going to court, and she sits as a judge in private FDRs. Fiona is also a panel member for Advocate, which is the bar's pro bono unit. She sat on Pensions Advisory Group, who published a report in June 2019 on the treatment of pensions in divorce, and she also currently sits as a recorder. So to start off the interview, we were wondering what cases do you deal with the most often? So about 80% of my time, I am a, pri- a, a, a private law barrister. So I'm a barrister in private practice, self-employed. Um, and in that capacity, which is what I do by far the majority of the time, I'm, I practice exclusively in what we call matrimonial finance cases, which are cases uh, involve cases addressing the dividing up of assets when people get divorced or when people um, when civil partnerships come to an end or when people stop cohabiting Um, but that's what I do the majority of the time Um, but I do other things so about 10% of the time I sit as a recorder um, which is a part-time circuit judge um, and when I sit as a recorder, I do um, all sorts of family cases. I also sit quite a lot in public law cases, which are cases in which the state is intervening to protect children. Uh, and I also sit in private law children cases, which are cases in which decisions are being made about with which parent a child should live and how often they should see the parent with whom they're not living. And then for the rest of my time, I, I'm involved in alternate dispute resolution practices. So that would be about 10%, but growing, um, which is good. Um, and I, I do two things in that sense. So I sit as an arbitrator, so I'm qualified as a family law arbitrator, uh, which means that um, I sit as a private judge effectively. So people come to me cases tend to be dealt quite with quite quickly in arbitration so they come we tend to list the case for a day's hearing and I hear the evidence from the parties and then I I deliver what in the courts would be called a judgment but in arbitration is called an award which determines how their assets should be divided and then that award is binding on them um, And the other alternative dispute resolution practice that I'm involved in is what we call private financial dispute resolution hearings. Uh, And those are hearings in which parties who are getting divorced in a conventional way detour out of the court system for a short period of time to see if they can resolve their differences in in an environment where an experienced practitioner looks at their 
assets and looks at their dispute and indicates to them what they, the experienced practitioner, think a court would do if they continued with their dispute. So those areas of my practice, the arbitration and the financial dispute resolution work, are areas that I think are very important and growth areas for encouraging people to resolve their disputes outside of the court. So as the case isn't going to court, does it tend to get resolved quicker? Yeah, we we do. We find that the private um, financial dispute resolution um, uh, route, which has actually actually burgeoned during COVID because it's a very adaptable process, we, so we, we, the court system also has FDRs, we call them. So you, um, the court system prescribes an FDR in every case. So anybody getting divorced within the court system is required to attend an FDR. Mm-hmm. But in the court system, they tend to be very heavily listed. So many judges would have three or four to do in a day. Um, and that's not really very ideal because you want your five private you want your judge to have read all the papers and to have had time to have a really serious think about it and the parties also are, are entitled i think to expect um the judge who's dealing with it to have really thought about it very carefully and uh, so we find that the private fdr process i think 95 percent of the cases i'm involved in either as an advocate or as a judge in private FDR, settle on the day. So our next question is, what's the most interesting case you've worked on and why? Um, Well, I think like everybody, um, we're interested in celebrity, interested in um, famous people. And Mm -hmm. certainly as you get a bit more experienced in this job and you, you, you tend to get interesting cases and bigger cases you the most of us have one or two well-known people pass through our pass across our desk um and that's always interesting one can't help being interested in that but there's another aspect of that i think which is that um we see how other industries work you know we we see how um so an example i could give you would be that i i have had a case involving um a very well-known band and we we tend to listen to music and not really understand what's going on behind the scenes you know what happens in terms of tours what happens in terms of releasing records what happens in terms of the transfer to digital you know how, how do they make their money in, in, in you know, how much money do they make <laughs> um you know these things are interesting and so that that was very interesting insight i'm i've got a case going on at the moment where it, which relates to the talent business where um, one of the parties runs a, a talent business and has a lot of very well-known people on their books. Um, and so that's also interesting because I didn't really understand how that business worked either. So, you know, I, I think it's very interesting having, um, ha- having an insight into, you know, you dig very deep into the way people's businesses operate, which is... Um, is interesting in itself. Do those cases tend to end up being more high profile in the media, do you get more news coverage or is it still quite fairly private? Um, interestingly, sometimes as a judge as well, um, the case, cases come across our, or through our courtroom 
involving famous people and the, 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 the press come along, you know, they're very interested in what's going on. And so one has to give a bit of thought to what, what they can publish and what they can't publish. And so usually in those cases, we, we, we make orders. We can't prevent, you know, this is, it would be completely wrong to prevent the press from reporting anything. But sometimes, particularly where children are involved, you have to think quite carefully about what they can and can't report. Um, so, uh, and the, but the other quite interesting thing, I think, about the, the cases involving celebrities is that or well-known people is that they often prefer to use the arbitration route because arbitration is completely confidential so um, although if you're getting divorced through the courts you, the press can come into your hearing and find out about it if you choose arbitration that's protected completely in a cloak of confidentiality so so a lot of those cases go to arbitration and in fact my, my um my uh my rock band case, we, we took that to arbitration. Yeah, that's, I can definitely see the appeal of, particularly if you're somewhat a celebrity, being able to have a court case is completely confidential and yeah. Maybe none of us, none of us want press pouring over our divorce. No. So our next question is, how much preparation does it take to go to court? So we have a rule of thumb. That if 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 the case is listed for three days, it needs three days to prep it. Listed for five days, needs five days to prepare it. Um, and so, a, an awful lot of what we do is is prep preparing for court cases. So, when we're first instructed as a barrister, we would get you know we, it's now all digital. It used to be there used to be a box arrive in chambers with six Libra Arch files in it, but now box arrives you know in your inbox mm -hmm. and. You know there'll be a thousand or two thousand pieces of paper and pieces of paper you know electronic pages um and so one has to read them all um and that's things like bank statements pay slips but also other sort of more interesting things like business accounts and for me pension information because i like pensions and i, I think you know, it's possible that that could sound quite dull, but I don't find it dull. I think, you know, I see myself as perhaps doing a bit of detective work, trying to get to the bottom of what's there. And also then, you know, pulling the strands of it together to see, to see what a family has and to see how it can be most effectively divided in two. Yeah. Um, and so that, and that involves consideration of how you divide the capital. So how you divide how much, you know, how, how much actual realizable assets they have like houses and money in the bank and how you divide the pension so quite a lot quite a lot of preparation uh, as well as going into court mm, i mean just from recently when you get the chance to like, read court documents that are that always given to the judge they're so detailed detailed and like step by step you can tell it must take a very long time to prepare them um I did a case last Tuesday where I spent a whole day preparing a document which the judge didn't read. Oh, um, that, that can be quite annoying. <laughs> um, so on a slightly different note, I don't know if there's a particular aspect of your job that you think most people don't know about or don't assume uh, barrister covers. So uh, I don't know if this, is, if this is really directed to the question, but I, I think that perhaps we're perceived as being um, adversarial. So we're perceived as um, 
you know, is adopting two positions and slugging it out in court. Um, and so I think perhaps what isn't very well realized is we actually do spend a great deal of time, and this goes back to my point about preparation and thinking about the case, we spend a great deal of time thinking about how it might be possible to facilitate settlement, how it might be possible to, to encourage um, the parties, both our own client you know, and the other client, um, the other party, to, to find a sort of consensual way through. The other thing I don't know if this is very widely known is, is how much of a personality cult our work is. So, you know, once you, once you become, um, once you find yourself doing the sort of work that I do, which is what you might call high-end matrimonial finance, so cases involving a fair amount of money and a significant complexity, but once you, once you become involved in those cases, there tends to be a, a cohort of people who practice um, and a cohort of judges. Um, and I don't know if it's widely known that we, we do know who everybody is. So if you find yourself against somebody, you, you, tend to, you tend to know them. So you know if they're going to be easy to deal with or difficult to deal with, if they're going to be, want to you know, compromise the case or whether they're more adversarial. Um, you know whether they're good or bad um, so and the same thing with the judges you know we also tend to know quite a lot about our judges and of course that's part of the process it's part of the process to understand your client and understand your opponent and if you can understand your judge no that's I had I had no idea about that actually that's very interesting it's always good to hear that it's not the kind of fighting out that you see on programs like suits it's only prep either you know they yeah. just <laughs> Get, get their junior to read through some papers and then go off to court and know it all. Yeah, so it's not as glamorous as that by some, by some margin. <laughs> Our podcast is aimed at, um, you know, students and aspiring lawyers. So I, we were wondering what particular route that you took to become a barrister, as obviously there's quite a range. Yeah, so um, I, um, I went to university to study law and chemistry. Mm. Um, because at the time I thought I wanted to be a patent lawyer um, and then um, I, I did so that was a three-year degree and then I did a, a year's degree a sort of top-up in law which gave me my comprehensive law degree yeah. um, and then I went uh, to bar school um, to, 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 do, to do that for a year and then um, as everyone must if they want to be a barrister I went into chambers as a pupil barrister where I spent a year as a pupil barrister and you can the first six months is non-practicing so you you're not allowed to court in the first six months and the second six months which you know for all of us contains one of the most terrifying days in our life you know the first day where you ever go to court and you're on your own yeah. um, I did that um, in a in a general set called 13 Kings Bench Walk and I was taken on by 13 Kings Bench Walk uh, as a tenant so that's what we call that transition so if you're taken on you become a tenant and that just means that you're allowed to practice under that roof yeah. and you're still self-employed um, and then after about after about 10 years of practice I, I moved to my current chambers which is two Harcourt buildings as a because this is a specialist I'm now in a specialist family chambers um, it's it's very hard to leave a set of chambers actually, you know, because it becomes your family, and uh, and then and then you have to move and sort of settle into another family. But 
Um, so that, that, was, that was my route. And I became a specialist family practitioner in 1994 when I had my first child. So um, prior to that, I did quite a lot of crime uh, and I did quite a lot of um, civil work, you know, road traffic accidents, yeah. contract work, things like that. Um, employment tribunal things, yeah, everything, um, and a bit of family work. But in 1994, when I when I started to have my family, it was particularly I found found that going to court every single day, you know, just being available to do everything was was meaning that I wasn't really able to juggle my family with my work, and so I became a family practitioner then. And I mean, I think I think it's it's been a fabulous career for a mother it really has you know it it because you're self-employed um you can be very adaptable in terms of your managing your your two two lives um i mean on the other hand you know you you have to go to court when you have to go to court so you can't have a sickie um and i've never had a sickie i mean not once in my life have i not gone to court because i wasn't well and i think that's true of most barristers um so, you know, and sometimes you have to stay up all night working and, and, and sometimes you can be very distracted as a parent because your, your mind's running along on, on something else. But, you know, those are all things that happen because the job's interesting and responsible and demanding. And most jobs that have that aspect to them will, will do that. But it's, it's a very good thing to be totally in control of your own practice so that you can take a month off in the summer if you want to, or, you know, you take six months off if you want to, or, you know, and take a month off when you have your child or three months or a year, all these things are, are, are manageable. So I think from the point of view of a, of a mother, it's been a, it's been a great career for me. How did you decide that it was family law that you wanted to specialize in? Uh, I am, um, I remember being taken out to dinner by um, the man I, I eventually married. Um, when I was, when he was a senior barrister, well, not very senior, but he'd been at the bar for a while and I was a student. And I remember saying to him that I was, I really desperately wanted to be a defence counsel. And it, it was, in fact, you know, quite a, um, quite a hard area of work in which to practice. I mean, as, as it happened, I, I didn't find it particularly hard. It certainly isn't glamorous. Um, I didn't find a particularly hard area to practice in. And I think it's still the case that it's, I think it, it, it's the seam of our, our, um, our legal system. You know, it's what everybody understands about the legal system is the criminal work. Yeah. And I don't think it's all a surprise that, that like many young barristers, that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happens is that as you begin to practice, you inevitably, realize what you're good at you know over time you realize where your strengths are mm-hmm. and you know my strengths are in figures I do love a spreadsheet I mean that's embarrassing to admit but it's true um and I and I and I find people terribly interesting you know I like the I, I like the puzzle solving aspect of the work that I do trying to work out how to divide the two the one into the two and I like the um, I like the personalities. I like the people. I like the fact that you know every day you get a new briefing. In the old days, we used to unwrap the ribbon. You know, we used to get those lever arch files used to come in with a pink ribbon wrapped around them. Of course, those <laughs> days are over. But 
I always used to think that unwrapping that ribbon to find a, a sort of story in, inside your papers was, was interesting. So it just so happened that that was, I became a, yeah. a, a family practitioner because that was where my strengths lay over time. I discovered that. It's reassuring to know that you don't need to know exactly what practice area you want to go into. And you don't, and it, it will find you, you know, in the end. I mean, I, I, unfortunately, it's harder, I think, to be a generalist these days. So, you know, the chambers like 13 Kings Bench Walk, where I started, they're much more rare now. And, you know, people do tend to have to make a decision earlier, which I think is a pity because had I had to do that, I would be a criminal practitioner now. And I don't think that would have suited me as well as the career that I've had. In very interesting perspective. This is um, possibly a slightly different question. We've, uh, most of the questions we get, get essentially through our social media accounts that we've created with the podcast. And we're very quickly realising there are some... Um, areas that people have really strong opinions on in law so one of our followers asked um do you think there are a lot of misconceptions about how men are treated in family law yes yeah i do <laughs> um and i i don't think they're soundly based so mm. um i would you know there are two particular areas that 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 i would draw attention to um i think there's a general proposition to be made or general idea to think about, which is that very often um, the cases that are in the news are not really representative of the hundreds and thousands of cases that are traveling through the courts. And if you believe what you read about a particular outlier case, or indeed if you believe perhaps what an individual who's got very strong views about something says, you, you'll find yourself uh, not, not, not absorbing a, a sort of true uh, perspective. Um, so an example, I think, is families and fathers. Um, and of course, it's right to say that um, all, all families do need fathers if they can, if they can have one. Um, but I think that the publicity that's been given to that, it doesn't give sufficient credence to the efforts that the courts are engaged in to prevent what we call parental alienation. So we, we call, when one parent is alienating the children from another parent, we call that parental alienation. Um, and it, it, it needs to be appreciated, I think, that it is a profoundly difficult thing to address. So where one parent is influencing the children, you have a, a very difficult balance to, because best interests of the children. Mm. And the, the, um, you know, the, the final step in, in a, a parental alienation case, the last thing that one can do, or the last things that one can do is children go to live with a parent from whom they've become alienated. Or you make that decision and you simply send the children to live with the parent from whom they're being alienated. Mm. And I have actually done the latter in a case in which I was. I've ordered children to go and live with father because the mother was alienating them. Mm. Um, but it, it it needs to be appreciated what a very difficult decision that is, and how damaging it can be to the children. Um, and also, it needs to be appreciated that the, the courts don't have a magic wand. Mm. You know, they, they can only those decisions which can be very children 
are, matter, are things that have to be thought about very carefully. So I, I think what we read in the press doesn't really give credence to how hard the court works. To. And the other thing I think that's very interesting is I've been involved in a number of cases in which it's the father who alienates the children from the mother. Mm. And they also are very pernicious, awful cases. So it's, it's both the fathers and the mothers who get alienated. And I suppose the other area where maybe people perceive uh, a male as being treated harshly by the courts might be cases in which it's said that they're fleeced by their wife mm. on divorce. Um, and again, I would say, you know, the courts work extremely hard to try and make fair orders. And I think the perception is sometimes that more money goes to a wife um, then it remains with a husband or that a husband has to pay significant amounts of maintenance. Um, and both those occurrences, which do, which do happen, um, only occur in circumstances where the wife's been able to demonstrate that she needs more capital or that she needs maintenance. And that's needs. Needs is the catchphrase. No, needs. She has to need it. And so examples would be where she needs a house to house her and the children because she's a primary carer yeah. um, where she needs maintenance because she hasn't been working during the marriage and the husband on the other hand has been working yeah. it's important to say that that these um these um positions can be flipped so you yeah. know in a case in, in a case where it's the wife who's got the job or the wife who's got more money but um i think you might be going to ask me a question about this but it's quite rare still yeah. it's the other way around so it tends to be the husband who has the job or the higher paid job um and and therefore i suppose the perception is that the husband gets less sometimes or at least in in the lingo but that that wouldn't be the courts would not endorse that if it was unfair mm. so and that's our lodestone is is a fair order i mean and obviously nobody thinks they're fair when they they've had it imposed on them yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had two people come out of court and say, oh, that was great. The judge got it completely right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That was um very, very good answer to a question that people have a lot of um, feelings about. But um, people at age who possibly aren't even that interested in law have quite a lot of strong opinions on. Um, and I suppose as yeah. is a normal criticism of the press, they tend to pick up yeah. pieces that people will read. and. I mean, once or twice I've been involved in cases that have found themselves in the press. You know, my case has been mm. uh, in the press. And I can tell you quite categorically that I have not been able to recognise the facts of my case from the report in the newspaper. Yeah. Which is not a good sign. <laughs> uh, See, so this is a slightly... Uh, yeah, slightly different question. Someone was wondering, what are some obscure factors that entitle a divorcee to their partner's money slash assets? Okay, um, there are only two um, two factors that mm. influence how assets are divided on divorce. It used to be thought that there were three, but in fact there are now two, um, and they are sharing and needs. Okay. So in a case in which... Um, there is a significant amount of money. Um, what the court will do is it will add up the amount of money that is related to the marriage. Mm -hmm. So 
that may exclude money that's been received by way of gift or inheritance or sometimes money that a party has brought into the marriage. So the court will identify what it calls the matrimonial request and it will divide it in two um, on the basis that both of the parties are equally entitled to share in that money. Um, That, um, you would think that that had been the position forever, but it hasn't in fact. That's the position that we got to following the well-known case of White and White, which is a landmark case in 2000. And so if there's enough money, then it's added up and it's divided in two. You wonder why we need so many lawyers to do that, but, you know, but, but <laughs> we do see two. Um, and, and so that's sharing. If there isn't enough money, so if it's a case in which, like the ones that I was adverting to earlier, where there perhaps isn't enough money for two houses or that there isn't enough money for everybody to carry on living the way they used to live, mm. then, then needs becomes the primary um, deciding issue, deciding factor. Um, and we say we have an expression which is needs trumps sharing. Mm. So it, it, if you've got a case where you can't share and meet everybody's needs, then you have to think much more carefully about how the assets should be divided to meet everybody's needs. Mm. And the reason why one party would need more than the other is very often because of mortgage capacity. So if you have a, if one party has a mortgage capacity of £400,000, let's say, then they can buy an equivalent house with less of the assets. Um, And so that, that's something that we debate a great deal. What I think your listeners might find interesting um, is, 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 is this, which is a slightly different point, which is that, um, what I think is not very widely known is that there is no such thing as a common law marriage. Mm. So in a case where parties are not married but live together, um, then, and if one assumes for a moment they don't have any children, mm. then uh, the economically less powerful party has no entitlement at all. Thing. Okay. So in other words, you could live with somebody for 50 years and have no entitlement to uh, anything if that's owned by the other party, no entitlement to a house or a pension or any maintenance. What about if they have children? There's a, there, is a, there is some um, power in the court to make awards for the children. Mm. But um, so to, to award a house for the, for it's usually the mother to live in, while the children are young, but then that house has to be sold when the children are 21 and the money returned to the father. So I think um, if you live with somebody or have children with somebody, you, you are provided with a degree of economic security. Mm. And, and that is not the case. No. That's very interesting. Uh, so it's, it's, it's less about... Um, you know, less about obscure you know, factors affecting, but more about... The, the nature of the of the relationship affecting people's entitlements. So no such thing as meeting needs or sharing cases in, in cohabitee cases. Yeah, that's also, I mean, I'm not sure how big the statistics are, but I think marriage is becoming slightly less common. Yeah. So possibly something that will become more and more important for people to be aware of. Absolutely. I mean, it's been something that's been considered by 
the legislature over and over and over again, but it's uh, it's never it's never been addressed. Um, so this is a question. If you feel that you've touched on it enough, feel free, and we can go on to the next one. But it's um, are female high earners typically treated the same as men in divorce settlements? Well, they should be. Mm. Um, I think there might still be some. Um, you know, what do we call it? Unconscious bias. Mm. Yeah, I, I think, I think, I think the, there, there may still be um, a sense in which uh, less, I, you know, actually, I'm not sure, to be honest. I think, I think things have really moved on in this regard. And I think that on the whole, the same way as men uh, in divorce settlements. I would say that in 30 years of practice, I have been involved in fewer than 10 cases in which the wife was the breadwinner. That's a, that's a very extraordinary, you know, anecdotal figure. Probably something, yeah, um, probably from my perspective, I would have expected more to be coming through now. But yeah, no, it's interesting that that's possibly not the case. Well, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's because the cases in which the women are the high earners settle. I don't know. Yeah. You know, we only see the cases. So you, know, you only need a barrister if you're in a, in a serious dispute. Mm. You know, a vast amount of cases. I think, I, think I, I, may, I may not get this entirely right, but mm. I think it's something like 3% of divorce cases that actually end up in court in contested hearings. So... You know, we, we, are, we are not seeing the typical. The, the final question, um, have you been in any cases where divorced couples haven't disclosed all of their assets? I'm sure, uh, probably a week from now. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you want to hide assets, you have to think about it a fair amount of time in advance divorce, because if there's money going out of your bank account, it will be spotted. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure there are assets tucked away in the background, quite often pensions, I think, mm -hmm. that sometimes don't see the light of day. Hey, thank you very much. That was some fantastic answers. So Ellie, could you give us a definition of what family law encompasses? So essentially family law covers cases to do with divorce when it's about the protection or upbringing of children. Um, this also includes sort of child financial support between divorced parents and in different situations. It covers a little of domestic violence cases and all cases of adoption. Okay, I think there's a perception that family law is always just divorces. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> It's like in the news it's always just divorces yeah, but it's actually a lot more than that you probably it's because you hear so much about like increasing divorce rates particularly with um covid at the moment so we're going to focus today on how covid and the pandemic has affected family law uh katie do you want to start us off with some of the research you found okay so when i was having a look at the impact of the pandemic on family law um i kind of found three areas the first area is that there's been an increase in child abuse, which is obviously horrible, but the NSPCC found that conditions caused by the pandemic are heightening the risk of child abuse in the UK due to increase in stress, basically. Children are spending a lot of time at home, so if they're in a vulnerable and um, 
potentially dangerous environment that's a hugely increased risk but yeah quite horrible I'm in a in similarly more depressing though divorce rates have gone up during the pandemic as well I swear that was one of the first things the news like started reporting on when we went to the first lockdown it was all about divorces spiking and people don't like to live together the whole time when they're married (laughs) but actually one of the most fundamental and important changes to divorce law happened during the pandemic so previously you had to allocate blame of your divorce unless you waited two years after separation as now you don't have to blame someone i think this i mean this is one of the most controversial topics in family law like whenever i've been speaking to lawyers about it um it's been quite a common topic that's come up being like i think this should change so it's taken a while for it to come and like actually happen but I think that's probably one positive that's happened because mm. um, it's quite a horrible thing to have to blame someone for a divorce I think especially if it's quite an amicable split. Yeah, it makes sort of a clean separation you just assume yeah. clean separation more difficult um, and hopefully yeah. it would make divorce proceedings slightly less hostile in some cases obviously um, and I think that was first announced in 2018 so nice day yeah to- exactly <laughs> it's been it's been going on for a while. <laughs> I'm fairly sure it's a, I mean, I'm fairly sure it's a law in America. So, and it has been for quite a while. So it's nice that the yeah. UK catching up on that front. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then the final area I kind of found in my research was that there's been an increase in breaches of child arrangement orders. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, we do have quite an international audience. only 90% of listeners from the UK but for the other 10% of listeners that are abroad in England uh, the lockdown rules are basically the children of separated parents have been able to move between two parents households throughout the pandemic but some parents have been quite reluctant to do so I mean in theory due to the increased risk of infection but I think there have also been situations where um, one parent has sort of been utilizing the pandemic to to breach child arrangement orders and as a result there's been widespread breaches of them yeah essentially so. an abuse of the pandemic situation um i actually i did read about uh, i actually don't know if it ended up going to court but i read about a case where it involved two divorced parents and one of them was an nhs worker so that was interesting because the mother was arguing that the father had like a really heightened risk uh, of infection so they wanted to keep the, their children away and that's the argument of you know I think probably in that case you have to look at how much you put weight in that belief or whether it's simply um wanting to break the the order so. it's actually such a difficult yeah situation I mean because imagine if you're a parent that was really high risk mm. and you just didn't want to you didn't want your child to be mixing between two households yeah suppose it's diff. you know it's difficult when you start thinking about it because for a large for i mean it doesn't feel like it now feels like we've been in this lockdown forever but for a large part schools were open and also you know over summer when covid was still around we had eat out to help out so if they're arguing that their child can't see um the other parent it doesn't quite hold up when you think if the child went to school and mixed because that was I mean that was enforced by the government and also if it was during sort of the July time when people were going out and 
eating a lot. I don't know. I don't know if the cases of um, breaches were just in the sort of like fully national lockdowns, but there's definitely some points of um, where it starts just becoming a lot more contentious. Yeah, a lot more complicated. So um, I had a little look at a slightly different area. Um, slightly mundane it probably sounds compared to that quite heavy stuff but essentially family law is obviously when people have cases they're very keen to get them to court quickly and they want it sorted out particularly I imagine in situations where it involves children um, so it is an area of law that is just completely overloaded with cases normally and due to Covid that has completely I mean quadrupled in the amount of pressure on family courts to have meetings obviously at the start of the pandemic when people I mean this happened in all sectors but people hadn't adapted to sort of online virtual hearings yet it obviously meant that there was like a build-up of cases um, so this has just extended delays and increased increased the problem essentially um, there's been a quite a large focus by a lot of lawyers and chambers about how to help with this issue and hopefully sort of minimize the damage going forward because obviously um when lockdown ends that's not going to necessarily just dissolve dissolve the delays and build up of cases so at the moment it's recommended that they use hybrid cases which essentially means that individuals and witnesses they feel must come into court do attend whereas as many people as possible attend through zoom actually quite a good idea because <laughs> uh, i suppose obviously you know if it is deciding sort of who's a child's guardian it's not something that you can take lightly and I can imagine situations you do need people to actually be there in person. The prediction is that this because they're trying to get as many in and stop a huge build-up there is a reduction in how much time is spent in each case is and there's obviously going to be less witnesses being used so less witness evidence which does have quite a lot of implications for cases. And the Garden Court Chambers wrote a short article um, discussing about how there's sort of been a remote hearing overload essentially um, and this came from a case where a child was wrongly removed from their grandmother grandmother's care and saying that you know these cases if there is a wrong decision to then reverse the decision it's going to take so much longer so the implications are really quite wide-reaching um, and but also the importance you know the importance of these decisions it was just it was decided that video should always be the default over using the telephone as obviously it's just better for communication and as I said earlier even in some cases it's important enough that people must attend in person. The only other thing I say is from Katie's point I'm sure most people have heard of the charity Women's Aid um, and they focus on domestic abuse against women and children so obviously a charity that is very important um, and they and they essentially have a 24-hour helpline that is still running throughout the COVID pandemic. So obviously it's absolutely horrific that the rising cases, but there are still a lot of, a lot of charities and organisations that have adapted and are continuing to offer as much support as possible. In the news update that was posted last Sunday, uh, there's, in the news, it's basically backlogs of cases are going all the way until 2022. Which is crazy because yeah. this pandemic started last year and we're looking at cases not being heard until 2022. Um, but I guess the whole implementation of hybrid hearing shows that steps are being taken to try and reduce the backlog. And it's, it's, that's, it's, that's a win. Yeah, it's being acknowledged quite early on so that 
it's not something that well I know the pandemic won't just end straight away but it's not something that's going to be realized as restrictions and lockdown are lifted um and then you just spiral out of control so hopefully they'll sort of be able to gently help with the problem so just as a little add-on um we decided to focus on some cases and at the moment we're sort of picking cases that we found interesting so one case that i found really interesting just for it's i suppose it's sort of related again to social media and how that has changed and affects court cases and how a lot of the time there's not necessarily um specific laws that enfold social media but they're just they use a previous law that's applicable um so the case that i find interesting is medway council versus root it's a long case but the last decision was in 2019 so essentially the this case first began in 2011 over a subject to care order and the local authority was given parental responsibility over mrs root's children and she essentially the case came back into the courts because she published material in relation to the case but also obviously in relation to the children that the local authority felt was damaging to the children um and she published this on twitter and facebook so obviously could be widely viewed by a lot of people and essentially the, they had a July hearing in 2017 um, and she was sentenced to six months imprisonment that was suspended for 12 months if she complied with the 2011 subject to care orders. Now at this point in the court proceedings she refused to acknowledge the damage that the local authority um, felt that it would have on the children um, and her appeal was dismissed. It was an interesting case because she published an audio of a video where she discussed the case, a discussion of the case, and she also published a hyperlink. So once again, it's quite niche areas uh, of social media and the internet that they had to decide what was a breach. Actually, the overall decision on the hyperlink was that there was no breach. There were competing arguments about whether or not you know this was publishing information that she shouldn't. And they used precedent from a Canadian court that essentially a hyperlink isn't publishing information it's just referencing the existence of the information however it was decided that the video was a breach um, and was distressing to the children as it was information on well a family court private matter and at that time she as i mentioned before she wouldn't accept distress the children but in 20 march 2019 essentially Ms. Root applied to purge contempt on two grounds one was her mental health and two was that at this point she was um willing to give an unconditional apology the material had been removed from social media and therefore the local authority accepted that it was no longer distressing and damaging to the children as it wasn't out there um and the court felt that this was a sincere apology and she was immediately released so I just thought this was a really interesting case as once again, it showed the difficulty of social media and from reading the review, it took them sort of, they had to really carefully look. It's not just simply that she published information, they had to look at how she published information and what form it was, you know, what social media it was on. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of weight put on from the local authority of the fact that it was distressing to the children. Um, and that was the focus of the court and obviously the fact that something that helped to um, change to change her sentence was the fact that she admitted her mistake and apologized and removed what she'd done 
So I just thought it was a really interesting case um, and probably something that will continue because it's become such a trend now to post things when people feel like, you know, there's been an injustice or something's not fair. It's definitely become a trend to post on Facebook or Twitter or something. Yeah, definitely. The impact technology is having on the legal sector and just widely the world is crazy. And I think we'll definitely see more cases like this in the next five years. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed episode two of Law Talks with Ellie and Katie.